This is an ABC podcast. Today we hear how teachers and school kids in Yagara in New South Wales are coming to grips with the trauma left behind by the floods three months ago. We came over and it was just devastation, like a war zone. And we pulled up the school and the front door had been smashed in and we looked inside the classrooms and it was just looked like a washing machine. The furniture had been tumbled around with mud and then just dropped. And after years of making do with below-par facilities, the outback community of Wundora are delighted to finally have a state-of-the-art health clinic. It's bringing us into the 21st century, isn't it? We've, we've always sort of done with what we've, we've had and we've been very appreciative of what we've had. I just think it's keeping things up to speed for our older people. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. Shack owners along South Australia's River Murray are getting the first look at their muddied homes, which have spent weeks submerged by floodwaters. The clean-up ahead will be long and difficult, and authorities say volunteers will be needed. But before that happens, river levels will need to fall further. Evelyn Manfield reports from the banks of the Murray. We've just kayaked across, and this is what is left of our shack. On the River Murray in South Australia, Rolf Stanich is taking his first look at his shack in the town of Punyaroo. Mud everywhere. It is shambles. His home, just south of Swan Reach, is on stilts, but even up on the second storey, the water reached a metre and a half high. The water's receding now, but there's still sludge all over the floor in the kitchen, on the bunk beds and in the bathroom. Oh, look, the water's still inside the shower. Oh, my God. I am not looking forward to this. And the thing is, we can't even wash it down. No power. No power. No water, no no electricity. We knew that it was going to be really bad for everything inside, but when you actually come and see it for yourself, it's a real kick in the guts. You know, it really disheartens you. Sewage, critters and yabbies are among the muck. Your morale just goes right down and you, you know what you've got ahead of you. You know, the, the clean-up is just a monstrous. About 30 kilometres upstream at Blanchetown, the State Emergency Service is assessing the damage. Home after home is underwater. Streets are submerged. There's a sign pointing to a toilet block that's somewhere in the river. We've still got properties inundated. We still have levees being engaged and as you can see the flow is still very fast so it's a pretty hazardous place to be still. That's David Pritchard from the SES. It's been about a month since the peak passed through Blanchetown but crews like him are still on duty. Shoring up houseboats and pontoons, uh, making sure things are still safe along the river and being on standby for general water rescues should they arise. It's dropped by more than a metre already but it's still three metres higher than usual. While the flood emergency is ongoing, along certain parts of the river, the recovery is beginning, with levees in Renmark and Manham coming down. Alex Zimmerman is the flood recovery coordinator going town to town. We'll have to rely on um, insurance assessments, etc. But it's highly likely that there'll be a large number of premises that uh, will require to be demolished for safety. Mr Zimmerman says that's because of how long the homes have been in water. It's not only the inundation, but it's the flow rate. 
that's been happening. The exact number of homes and shacks damaged is still being assessed, but he estimates it's about 4,000. And so what we're doing now is, and quite rightly, we're evaluating all of the uh, planning regulations that uh, would impact and and potentially minimise the level of damage in future flooding. But for now, as the water recedes, the more immediate focus will become the clean-up. It'll take months to move the debris out and to help, authorities are encouraging South Australians to register to volunteer. Evelyn Manfield reporting there from the banks of the Murray. While people on the River Murray survey the damage caused by recent floods, the town of Ugara in the New South Wales Central West is trying to move on from the inundation of water in November last year. It left two people dead and caused significant damage to the township, which has a population of just 700 people. Now nearly three months on, as Tim Fuchs reports, it's not just adults dealing with the trauma of what they went through. There are a lot of happy children on the field at the Ugara Public School today. Principal Carmel Doyle says it's an event to start off the new school year for children who have been through so much in recent months. Today we have some fun activities for all the children of Ugara um, up at the school. So from creative community concepts, they're putting on uh, some laser tag, mini golf, some NRL clinics and also a colour run for all the kids. It's estimated that nearly all of the 27 children who attend the school suffered damage to their family home in the flooding. Some are now living in caravans with their families as they wait for their homes to be repaired or demolished and rebuilt. Carmel Doyle says in the days and weeks after the flooding, everyone at the school was talking about what they went through. After that couple of weeks and we were getting back into that normal school routine, creating that safe environment for them, that when the councillors kept coming back, they noticed that the children were, you know, getting back to themselves, easing some of that trauma. So it was just really important for us to create that environment and that normal school routine, that safe, comfortable yeah, quality teaching that was able to provide them that stability at the time. Carmel Doyle says with students returning to school this week, it's essential that the support and counselling remains available. Being a small school, I think it's really just a given that the children know that we care about them and they feel comfortable being able to talk to us. So that's been really important, and not only for the children, but also the parents. Um, We've been able just to create... Yeah, that environment where if there is an issue or if they need support or help in any way, if they need anything, just let us know. Ugara Public School missed out on any significant damage as it's slightly elevated above the Mandadjeri Creek. That's the creek which turned into a torrent of water that inundated lower parts of the township. At nearby St Joseph's Catholic Primary School, they weren't so lucky. Nearly everything at the school was destroyed. And for Principal Cathy Appleston, she'll never forget what she saw when she arrived. We came over and it was just devastation, like a war zone. And we pulled up the school and the front door had been smashed in. And we looked inside the classrooms and it was just looked like a washing machine. The furniture had been tumbled around with mud and then just dropped. Cathy Appleston says the impact on children has been immense as they realised what they had lost. They had their special pencil cases, their special texters, and you know, I said, where are they? We said, look, 
they're gone. gone. Yeah. They're just gone. People have been wonderful and donated backpacks and, and pencils and texts and everything, but it's not what the children have chosen. So, yes, they've lost their precious items that they used at school too. Teachers at the two primary schools in Yugara have been receiving support to help them be able to talk to children suffering from the trauma of what they went through. Cathy Eppleston says with the new school year beginning this week, new demountable classrooms have been installed. And she says it's a chance to look forward as Yugara rebuilds. I look at it as a big adventure. We've got to be positive about things. So I just put to the children, you know, this is a big adventure this year. We know we've got new classrooms, we're going to rebuild our school. It's just exciting times. It's a great way of reframing it. That's Cathy Eppleston, the principal of St. Joseph's Catholic Primary School in Yugara, and that story from Tim Fuchs. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Two years ago, we heard some damning findings from a Royal Commission into Australia's aged care system. Not long after, the government announced new funding and legislation to improve things. But recently, Western Victoria has discovered that the solutions have also created new problems. Meeting the new requirements proved too difficult for the small town of Tumbula, and as a result, its tiny aged care centre has closed this week. As reporter Gillian Aria learned, it may not be the last facility to close as a result of new rules. Well, <laughs> yeah, it sort of left us up in the... Well, not too sure. Yeah, we were. That's what the plan was. Mum worked here 30 years ago. She was actually used to work and looked after looked after aged care people here for a long time. And um, and well, we thought down the road should move in here now. But now I've organised this petition so that the people in the health department and the the federal people can understand what's happening to our retirement village where the elderly people spend their last part of their life. And with all the new rules, they want to close it down. Recommendations, which we took on board because there was uh, significant pressure, and rightly so, that our aged care facilities have a quality and a standard. These are the sounds of a town coming to terms with losing a major part of itself. Last November, the community-owned Alambie Elderly People's Home announced it would close. Its final day was on Wednesday. Board Chair Anne Falkingham said the home was too small to be financially viable and support the number of staff required under current aged care laws. We only had 14 beds, smallest in Victoria. Um, and quite honestly, it was built in the 60s and it was purpose-built for the lower-aged um, care people who had very small, uh, minimal clinical needs. But that model changed some years ago so um, now it's just you know, there's no high care, low care, it's just people so um, some of that has impacted I think um, but yeah we're too small to be viable. It happens to us all the time where there's um, you know, re, um, recalibration of business and they decide that this branch or this shop or whatever is not viable so that, I think we're caught up in that similar sort of model. She said despite the community's efforts and Mali MP Anne Webster raising the issue in federal parliament, it was too late to save a Lambie. It's been a very lengthy process working with um, federal government and the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission since early July. Um, and unfortunately, it's been a process of trying to work out what we could do, what's possible. There was no extra funding so then we talked, I talked with surrounding residential care providers to see if 
there was any possibility we could merge or some kind of idea like that, and that wasn't successful. Fortunately, its 11 residents were all able to find new homes in surrounding towns by the time it closed. But other Wimmera aged care facilities are also nervous about their futures. From July, it will be mandatory for all aged care providers to have a registered nurse on site 24 hours a day. The change is aimed at improving the quality of care each resident receives by boosting staff numbers. And while there are exemptions, they won't apply to Donald's Goodwin Village, an hour east of Dimbula. To address existing shortages, their nurses work during the day and are on call at night along with a GP. Anthony Hogan, CEO of Goodwin Village, says this model has worked well for them for the past 15 years. We think we'd need about five or six more full-time nurses to staff the 24-7 and then to allow for those, all the nurses to take their leave, etc. would would need you know, another five or six full-time nurses. And how difficult is it to find nurses in the regions? Like, how long have you been looking for them for? Well, we've been been advertising on SEEK and in our local paper periodically over the last two years. The last appointment we made was in October, I think, in 2021. So, yeah, it's pretty hard to recruit nurses. It's not just a Wimmera problem. On the same day Alambi closed, Shepparton Villages also announced the forthcoming closure of one of its lodges in April because of staff shortages and other issues. Tom Simonson is the CEO of the Aged and Community Care Providers Association, which formed last year in response to the Royal Commission's findings. What we see in small rural communities is for many years you've had community-owned organisations, not-for-profit organisations, providing that care to ensure that people who've lived in those communities their whole life often, do not have to leave that community at the end of their life just to receive the care that, quite frankly, anybody anywhere in Australia deserves. He says there needs to be more acknowledgement of how different aged care delivery is in rural Australia. It is more difficult to keep them financially sustainable. It is more difficult to find the workforce that we need. And, And so they have to have different rules. We need exemptions to the 24-7 nursing requirement if we cannot find nurses. We also have to make sure that our residents are receiving the level of care that they need. And if that means we've got to you know, have more access to telehealth so nurses from further away can provide advice to care workers in those, in those services, um, if we can have people kind of coming in and, and coming out from a larger town um, to provide that care and support, we need to do that, but we need to be flexible. Gillian Aria reporting there from Western Victoria. Now, in some good news, locals in Outback Queensland are rejoicing as a new state-of-the-art $12.4 million health clinic opened in their town of 100 people this week. There's been a clinic in the remote town of Wondora since 1992. But as the population aged and more tourists seek an Outback adventure, it struggled to keep up. Now, after a decade-long campaign, the locals are celebrating a new service they say will save lives. Carly Willis has this story. Outback communities are used to making do and being innovative with the resources they have. Mythica woman and traditional owner Trudy Gorinch has both volunteered and worked in various areas of health in the region and is currently a volunteer with Queensland Fire and Emergency Service. So when she found out about a new state-of-the-art health clinic slated to open in her region, she was thrilled. It's bringing us into the 21st century, isn't it? We've, we've always sort of done with what we've 
we've had and we've been very appreciative of what we've had and I just I just think this is this is a pretty neat opportunity for Windora to have such a centre here. The new health clinic funded by the Queensland Government has been upgraded from two consultation rooms to four and from one emergency bay to two. Trudy Gorringe says the clinic, fit out with all the latest technology, means a great deal to people in the region. Just having the newer setup, providing multiples with care at the same time, I think is going to be a lot of stress off not just ourselves in, in just what we try and help the clinical staff with, but also you know our nurses and our RFGS doctors. Marilyn Simpson's family has lived in the tiny outback town of Windora for generations. And she feels she's seen it all when it comes to the ups and downs of health services in the bush. She's well aware of the challenges locals face trying to get access to basic health services like seeing a GP. Ms Simpson, who is also the local publican and president of the Community Development Board, says it's been a long journey to get here. Well, when it fails, the community are the people who have to look after the visitors which has been in the past, and I'm saying we were the people who had to contact for help prior to having a clinic. My own personal thing is to just to see that we got what we deserved and needed. Windora's first health clinic opened in 1992, and since then, Ms Simpson says more GPs visited the community, and it also enabled services like mental health consultations. But pressure on the small health clinic grew as tourism flourished in the vibrant town known for its wildflowers and bright red sand dunes. Ms Simpson says the old clinic just wasn't up to scratch. Well, the consultation rooms were private enough. They were going straight into the waiting room and, you know, everyone could hear the conversations. The telehealth room was like a lounge room that we didn't believe it had the privacy that people were entitled to when they were doing it as, um, and especially mental health appointments, etc. And then it became also a bit too small for what was now being provided by Central West Health and the Royal Flying Doctor, which is the GP clinic that also utilises the building. The Executive Director of Finance, Infrastructure and Support Services at the Central West Hospital and Health Service in Longreach, Joe Byrne, says the old clinic saw 1,236 patient appointments last year and 194 emergency presentations. A big increase from the 950 appointments and 177 emergency presentations it saw just five years ago in 2017. As well as supporting the community in Windora and the broader area, it also supports uh, the tourists coming through the area as well, which uh, we've seen quite a lot of growth over the last uh, last couple of years. So it's definitely a phenomenon we're seeing across the, the central west, just that increase in the number of tourists coming through the region. Ms Gorringe says locals are hoping it means older people don't have to venture out of town as often for medical appointments. Just as a community member and working with aged people and my mother being, you know, having specialist care as well, it's just, I just think it's keeping things up to speed for our older people. And thanks to Kylie Willis for that story. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. Now, have you heard the term gypsy brewer? It's a new one for me, but today I found out a gypsy brewer is someone who uses other brewers' equipment to make their beer. A brewer with no brewery, so to speak. 
Brian Fitzgerald, based in Denmark near Albany, is one of them, and others let him use their gear in exchange for a higher cost and Brian's knowledge. He's a certified advanced beer cicerone, a qualification on par with a wine sommelier, so he's an expert in beer tasting. He was the first in Australia to gain this title, and he says using other brewers' equipment is a win-win. So what we're called is a gypsy brewer, and we go to other breweries and brew our own beers. Often we bring our own ingredients, our own recipes, our own labor even, and make our own beers on their equipment. So it's about it's like hiring the their equipment to make our own beers. And why do they let you do that? <laughs> well, often breweries, when they're installed or when they first start up, they put in larger equipment than what they need, so they have excess capacity. So if you go into breweries, often you'll see the brew house sitting idle. Um, but it's uh, a lot of times it's about fermenter space. Uh, but we pay them to do that, so it helps them with their income to offset the capital costs of the equipment. Apart from money, is there anything else that you offer these breweries? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometimes advice. I'm, I've kind of been around for a little while and brewing, brewing almost 20 years commercially. I was also the president of the WA Brewers Association, and I'm always happy to help brewers. I do have a specialty, you could say, in the yeast side of things, so um, I'm always happy to give advice to brewers. What sort of qualifications do you have to be giving out this advice? Well, a couple of things. One, especially in, in tasting beer. I, I started out in wine before I got into beer, and then my early mentor, when I was 19 years old, I didn't realize I had a palate and I could taste different characteristics in wine, and that branched off into beer. And then I became a certified beer judge and then a certified Cicerone. And, uh, and now I've been a judge now for, um, well, at the Perth Royal Beer Show since its inception in 2007. So a Cicerone, what goes into getting that qualification? It's a multifaceted uh, program. It's, it's started off addressing quality of beer. And, and they wanted a, um, a similar program to a wine sommelier course. So it's six different uh, facets of it. It's knowing beer styles, beer history, storing and keeping beer, serving beer, pouring beer, <laughs> and, so, and also tasting. And what do you look for when you taste beer? Yeah, well, it depends on the style. So in wine, you would do that. Uh, if you're approaching a wine for the first time, you'd say, what am I looking for? And it's this a similar structure. There's uh, malt flavors, there's yeast flavors, there's hop flavors, and there's over 200 styles around the world. So knowing those styles is really important, and often that's a big part of the Cicerone program is understanding those styles and to be able to help people and guide them through. How, how likely are you to come, a, come across a Cicerone? Well, now more likely than in the past. In 2011, being the first one, it took, probably three or four years before another certified Cicerone came along. And a couple from WA, actually, and I helped some of them, or helped train some of them to take the exam because it, having a little insider knowledge really helps. Uh, but then a, um, a program started up run by a professional group to help more people become certified. And, I, and now, of course, we have advanced and master Cicerones, which is really amazing. So can you taste different hops, malts yeast barley in beer? Yes, absolutely. Often when I'm designing a new beer, I'll be tasting a commercial beer or several commercial beers and have my own ideas about the end flavors and then work backwards to construct the recipe about the malts and the hops and the yeast. And as someone with the palate that you do have, what 
makes a good beer to you in every different way yeah well the the best beer is something that's balanced and clean and drinkable so meaning um, balanced meaning it has that right um, mouthfeel to uh, you know it might well, it might be carbonation mouthfeel sweetness bitterness but everything it, it's is it's in in balance on your palate clean meaning it doesn't have any infections or faults to it and uh, and drinkable means that uh, that when you enjoy it a first sip you'll enjoy the next one I think cold is another major component there. Gypsy brewer Brian Fitzgerald, who owns Artisan Brewing Company, and he was speaking there with Sophie Johnson. And finally, in contrast to the hot weather that many are facing around the country, parts of Victoria and New South Wales have shivered through the morning with snow falling in alpine areas with temps more typical reaching those seen in August. The Weather Bureau says the cold weather will stay until early next week and the overnight wintry blast left a light dusting of snow across the Victorian Alps, including at Mount Hotham. Imagine. And that, I have to say, is the end of Australia Wide for this week. I hope you have a lovely weekend. I'm Sinead Mangan. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.